Section two of the Diary of a U-Boat Commander. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander by Stephen King Hall. Section two. Second June, 1916. I have fought in the greatest sea battle of the ages. It has been a wonderful and terrible experience. All the details of the battle will be history, but I feel that I must place on record my personal experiences. We have not escaped without marks, and the good old Koenig brought sixty-seven dead and one hundred and twenty-five wounded into port as the price of the victory off Skagerrak. But of the English there are thousands who slept their last sleep in the wrecked hulls of the battle-cruises which will rust for eternal ages upon the Jutland banks. Sad as our losses are, and the gallant Lutzo has sunk in sight of home, I am filled with pride. We have met that great armada, the British fleet, we have struck them with a hammer-blow, and we have returned. I was asleep in my cabin when the news came that Hipper was coming south with the British battle-cruisers on his beam. In five minutes we were at our action stations. We made contact with Hipper at 5.30 p.m. Footnote 1. This is 4.30 GMT. ATN. End of footnote. And Beatty turned north with his cruisers and fast battleships, and we pursued. Two of the great ships had been sunk by our battle-cruisers, and we had hopes of destroying the remainder, when at 6.55 the mist on the northern horizon was pierced by the formidable line of the British battle-fleet. Jellicoe had arrived. Three battle-cruisers became involved between the lines, and in an instant one was blown up, and another crawled west in a sinking condition. Sudden and terrible are events in a modern sea-battle. Confronted with the concentrated force of Britain's battle-fleet, we turned to east, and for twenty minutes our high seas fleet sustained the unequal contest. It was during this period that we were hit seventeen times by heavy shell, though, in my position in the after-torpedo control tower, I only realized one hit had taken place, which was when a shell plunged into the after-turret, and, blowing the roof off, killed every member of the turret's crew. From my position, when the smoke and dust had blown away, I looked down into a mass of twisted machinery, amongst which I seemed to detect the charred remains of bodies. At about seven-forty we turned, under cover of our smoke-screen, and steered southwest. Our position was not satisfactory, as the last information of the enemy reported them as turning to the southward. Consequently they were between us and Heligoland. At eleven p.m. we received a signal for divisions of battle-fleets to steer independently for the Horn Reef-swept channel. Ten minutes later we underwent the first of five destroyer attacks. The British destroyers, searching wide in the night, had located us, and with desperate gallantry pressed home the attack again and again. So close did they come that about one-thirty a.m. we rammed one, passing through her like a knife through a cheese. 
It was a wonderful spectacle to see those sinister craft rushing madly to their destruction down the bright beam of our powerful searchlights. It was an avenue of death for them, but to the credit of their service it must stand that throughout the long nightmare they did not hesitate. The surrounding darkness seemed to vomit forth flotilla after flotilla of these cavalry of the sea. And they struck us once, a torpedo right forward, which will keep us in dock for a month, but did no vital injury. When morning dawned, misty and soft, as is its way in June in the bite, we were to the eastward of the British, and so we came honourably home to Wilhelmshaven, feeling that the young navy had laid worthy foundations for its tradition to grow upon. We are to report at Kiel, and shall be six weeks upon the job. New Entry Frankfurt Back on seventeen days' leave, and everyone here very anxious to hear details of the Battle of Skadrak. It is very pleasant to have something to talk to the women about. Usually the gallant field greys hold the drawing-room floor, with their startling tales from their western front, of how they nearly took for done, and would have if the British hadn't insisted on being slaughtered on the Somme. It is quite impossible, in many ways, to tell that there is a war on as far as social life in this place is concerned. There is a shortage of good coffee, and that is about all. New Entry Arrived back on board last night. They have made a fine job of us, and we go through the canal to the Schillig Roads early next week. We are to do three weeks' gunnery practices from there, to train the new drafts. New Entry 1916, about August At last! Thank heavens my application has been granted. Schmidt, the secretary, told me this morning that a letter had come from the Admiralty to say that I am to present myself for medical examination at the board at Wilhelmshaven to-morrow. What joy! To strike a blow at last, finish forever the cursed monotony of inactivity of this high-seas fleet life. But the U-boat war! Ah, that goes well. We shall bring those stubborn, blood-sucking islanders to their knees by striking at them through their bellies. When I think of London and no food, and Glasgow and no food, then who can say what may happen? Revolt! Rebellion in England, and our brave field greys on the west will smash them to atoms in the spring of 1917, and I, Karl Schenk, will have helped directly in this. Great thought! But calm! I am not there yet. There is still this confounded medical board. I almost wish I had not drunk so much last night. Not that it makes any difference, but still one must run no risks, for I hear that the medical is terribly strict for the U-boat service. Only the cream is skimmed. Well, to-morrow we shall see. New Entry Passed! And with flying colours! It seemed absurdly easy, and only took ten minutes, but then my physique is magnificent, thanks to the physical training I have always done. I am now due to get three weeks' leave, and then to Zeebrugge. I have wired to the little mother at Frankfurt. New Entry At Zeebrugge, or rather Bruges. I spent three weeks at home. All the family are pleased, except mother. She has a woman's dread of danger. It is a pleasing characteristic in peacetime, but a cloy on pleasure in days of war. To her, 
with the narrowness of a female's intellect, I really believe I am of more importance than the fatherland. How absurd! Whilst at Frankfurt I saw a good deal of Rosa, she seems better looking each time I meet her. Doubtless she is still developing to full womanhood. Moritz was home, from Flanders. He had ten days' leave from Ypres, and though I have a dislike for him, he certainly was interesting, though why the English cling to those wretched ruins is more than I can understand. I felt instinctively that in a sense Moritz and I were rivals, where Rosa was concerned, though I have never considered her in that light, as yet. One day, perhaps, these women are much the same everywhere, and I could see that having entered the U-boat service made a difference with Rosa, though her logic should have told her that I was no different. But is that right? After all, it is something to have joined this service. The guards themselves have no better cachet, and it is certainly cheaper. Here we live in billets and in a commandeered hotel. The life ashore is pleasant enough. The damned Belgians are sometimes sulky, but they know who is master. Bissing, a splendid chap, sees to that. As a matter of fact, we have benefited them by our occupation. The shops do a roaring trade at preposterous prices, and shamefully enough the German shopkeepers are most guilty. These pot-bellied merchants don't seem to realize that they exist owing to our exertions. I was much struck with the beautiful orderliness of the small gardens which we have laid out since 1914, and in fact, wherever one looks there is evidence of the genius of the German race for thorough organization. Yet these Belgians don't seem to appreciate it. I can't understand it. I find here that social life is very much gayer than at that mad town at Wilhelmshaven. At the high seas fleet bases there are the strictness and austerity that some people seem to consider necessary to show that we are at war. Though heaven knows there was precious little war in the high seas fleet, perhaps that was why the blood-and-iron regime was in full order ashore. Here, in Bruges, at any rate as far as the submarine officers are concerned, the matter is far different. When the boats are in, one seems to do as one likes, with a perfunctory visit to the ship in the course of the day. Wittnitz, the Commodore, favors complete relaxation when in from a trip. In the evenings there are parties, for which there are always ladies, and I find it is necessary to have a smoking. Footnote 1. A dinner jacket. End of footnote. I went to the best tailor to buy one, and found that I must have one made at the damnable price of one hundred and forty marks. The fitter, an oily Jew, had the incredible impertinence to assure me it would be cut on London lines. I nearly felled him to the ground. Can one never get away from England, and things English? I'll see his account waits a bit before I settle it. There are several fellows I know here. Karl Muller who was third watchkeeper in the York, and Adolf Hilmsbaumer, who was captain of G-176, are the two I know best. They are both doing a few trips as second-in-commands of the later UC boats, which are mine-laying off the English coasts. This is a most dangerous operation, and nearly all the UC boats are commanded by reserve officers, of whom there are a good many in the mess. Excellent fellows, no doubt 
but somewhat uncouth and lacking the finer points of breeding. As far as I can see in the short time I have been here, they keep themselves to themselves a good deal. I certainly don't wish to mix with them. Unfortunately, it appears that I am almost bound to be appointed as second-in-command of one of the U.C. boats, for at least one trip before I go to the periscope school and train for a command of my own. The idea of being bottled up in an elongated cigar and under the command of one of those nautical plough-boys is repellent. However, the von Schenks have never been too proud to obey in order to learn how to command. New Entry I have been appointed second-in-command to U.C. 47. Her captain is one Max Alton by name. Beyond the fact that I saw him drunk one night in the mess I know nothing of him. I reported to him, and he seems rather in awe of me. His fears are groundless. I shall make it as easy as possible for him, for it must be as awkward for him as it is unpleasant for me. To celebrate my proper entry into the U-boat service, I gave the dinner party last night in a private room at Le Coq d'Or. I asked Carl and Adolf, and told them to bring three girls. My opposite number was a lovely girl called Zoe something or other. I wore my smoking for the first time. It is certainly a becoming costume. We drank a good deal of champagne and had a very pleasant little debauch. The girls got very merry, and I kissed Zoe once. She was not very angry. I think she is thoroughly charming, and I have accepted an invitation to take tea at her flat. She is either the wife or the chère amie of a colonel in the Brandenburgers. I could not make out which. Luckily the gallant Kochschaffer is at the moment on the La Basse sector, where I was interested to observe that heavy fighting has broken out today. I must console the fair Zoe. Both Karl and Adolf got rather drunk, Adolf hopelessly so, but I, as usual, was hardly affected. I have a head of iron provided the liquor is good, and I saw to that point. New Entry We were sailing, or rather going down the canal to Zeebrugge on Friday, but the starting resistance of the port main motor burnt out, and we were delayed till Sunday, as they will fit a new one. I must confess the organization for repair work here is admirable, as very little is done by the crews in the U-boats all work being carried out by the permanent staff, who are quartered at Bruges docks. Taking advantage of the delay, I called on Zoe Stein, as I find she is named. It appears she is not married to Colonel Stein. She told me he was fat and ugly, and laughed a good deal about him. She showed me his photograph, and certainly he is no beauty. However, he must be a man of means, as he has given her a charming flat, beautifully decorated with water-colors, which the colonel salved from the French chateau in the early days. These army fellows had all the chances. I bade an affectionate farewell to Zoe, and I trust Stein will be still busily engaged at La Basse when I return in a fortnight's time. I am greatly obliged to Carl for the introduction, and told him so. He himself is running after a little grass widow whose husband has been missing for some months. I think Carl finds it an expensive game. Luckily Zoe seems well supplied with money, the essential ingredient in a joyous life. On Friday night we had an air raid, a frequent event here, 
but my first experience in this line. Unpleasant, but a fine spectacle. Considerable damage done near the docks, and an unexploded bomb fell in a street near our headquarters. Two machines, British, brought down in flames. I saw the green balls, footnote one, known as the flying onions, end of footnote, for the first time. A most fascinating sight to see them floating up in waving chains into the vault of heaven. They reminded me of making daisy chains as a child. New Entry at Seabrugge. We are alongside the mole in one of the new submarine shelters that has been built. The boat is under a concrete roof over three feet thick, which would defy the heaviest bomb. We have much improved the port since our arrival. The port, so called, is purely artificial, and actually consists of a long mole with a gentle curve in it, which reaches out to seaward and protects the mouth of the canal. The tides are very strong up and down the coast, and constant dredging is carried out to keep twenty feet of water over the sill at the lock gates. On arrival last night we went straight into number eleven shelter, as an air raid was expected, but nothing happened, so I went up to the Flandre, which seemed to be the best hotel here, full of submarine people, and I heard many interesting stories. There seems no doubt this U-boat war is dangerous work. I find the U.C. boats are beginning to be called the Suicide Club, after the famous English story of that name, which, curiously enough, I saw on the kinematograph at Frankfurt last leave. We Germans are extraordinarily broad-minded. I doubt if the works of German authors are seen on the screens in England or France. The news from the West is good. The English are hurling themselves to destruction against our steel front. We are now to load up with mines. I must stop writing to superintend this work. New Entry At Sea, near the South Dogger Light We loaded up the ten mines we carry in an hour and five minutes. They were lifted from a railway truck by a big crane and delicately lowered into the mine tubes, of which we have five in the bows. The tubes extend from the upper deck of the ship to her keel and slope aft to facilitate release. Having completed with fuel at Bruges, we took in a store of provisions, and Alton went up to the Commodore's office to get our sailing orders. We sailed at 6 p.m., and at last I felt I was off. Today, the 22nd, we are just north of the South Dogger, steering northwesterly at nine and a half knots. The sea is quite calm, and everything is very pleasant. Our mission is to lay a small minefield off Newcastle, in the East Coast War Channel. I have, of course, never been to sea for any length of time in a U-boat, and it is all very novel. I find the roar of the diesel engine very relentless, and last night slept badly in a wretched bunk, which was a poor substitute for my lovely quarters in the barracks at Wilhelmshaven. One thing I appreciate, and that is the food. It is really excellent fresh milk, fresh butter, white bread, and many other luxuries. I have spent most of the day picking up things about the boat. Her general arrangement is as follows. Starting in the bows, mine tubes occupy the center of the boat, leaving two narrow passages, one each side. In the port passage is the wireless cabinet and signal flag lockers, with storerooms underneath. In the starboard passage are one or two small pumps and the kitchen. 
The next compartment contains four bunks, to each side. These are occupied by Alton, myself, the engineer, and the navigating warrant officer. Proceeding further aft, one enters the control room, in which one periscope is situated, and the necessary valves and pumps for diving the boat. The next compartment is the crew space. Ten of the company exist here. Overhead on each side is the gear for releasing the torpedoes from the external torpedo tubes, of which we carry one each side. I think we borrowed this idea from the Russians. Then comes the engine room, an inferno of rattling noises, but excellent engines, I believe. At the after end of the engine room are the two main switchboards, in whose manner of working I am at present in some ignorance. The two main sets of electric motors are underneath the boards, in the stern, where we have a third torpedo tube. New Entry I had hardly written the above words when a message came that the captain would like me to come to the bridge. I went up in a leisurely fashion, through the conning tower, which is over the control room, and reported myself. He indicated a low-lying patch of smoke on the horizon far away on the starboard bow. I was obliged to confess that it conveyed nothing to me, when he aroused my intense interest by stating that it was, without doubt, being emitted from a British submarine, who are known to frequent these waters. He was proceeding away from us, and was, even then, six or seven miles away, so an attack was out of the question. The engineer, who had joined us, drew my attention to the thin wisp of almost invisible blue-gray smoke from our own stern. The contrast was certainly striking. Over dinner I gave it as my opinion that the British boats were pretty useless. Alton would not agree, and stated that, though in certain technical aspects they were in a position of inferiority, yet in personnel and skill in attacking they were fully our equals. He seemed to hold them in considerable respect, and he remarked that, when making a passage, he was more anxious on their account than in any other way. He informed me that, on the last passage he made, he was attacked by a British boat which he never saw, the only indication he received being a torpedo which jumped out of the water almost over his tail. Luckily it was very rough at the time, which made the torpedo run erratically, otherwise they would have undoubtedly have been hit. What appeared to astonish him was the fact that the British boat had been able to make an attack in such weather. We are now charging, on one engine, 500 amperes on each half-battery. New Entry We are due back at Seebrugge at 10 p.m. tonight. We should have been in at dawn today, but we received a wireless from the senior officer, Seebrugge, to say that mine-laying was suspected, and we were to wait till the QR channel, from the Blankenberg buoy, had been swept. We lay in the bottom for eight hours, a few miles from the western end of the channel. Our trip was quite successful, but not without certain excitements. On the night of the 23rd we passed fairly close to a fishing fleet on the Dogger Bank, and saw the lights of several steamers in the distance. As our first business was to lay our mines in the appointed place, we did not worry them. We burnt usual navigation lights, or rather side-lights which appear to be usual, except that, by a little fitting which Alton has made himself, the arcs of bearing on which the lights show can be changed at will. 
His idea is that, should we appear to be approaching a steamer which he wishes to avoid, in many cases by shining a little more or less red or green light, we can make her think that we are a steamer on such a course that it is her duty by the rules of the road to keep clear of us. He tells me it has worked on several occasions, and he has also found it useful to have two small auxiliary side-lights fitted, which are the wrong colours for the sides they are on. It is, of course, only neutral shipping which carry lights nowadays, though Alton says that many British ships are still incredibly careless in the matter of lights. However, to resume my account of what happened. We reached our position at dawn, or slightly after. The weather was beautifully calm, and the sea like glass. As we were only three miles from the English coast, and close to the mouth of the Tyne, we were extraordinarily lucky to have nothing in sight, if one accepts a long smudge of smoke which trailed across the horizon to the southward. The land itself was obscured by early morning banks of mist, yet everything was so still that we actually faintly heard the whistle of a train. I could hardly restrain from suggesting to Alton that we should elevate the ten-centimeter gun to fifteen degrees and fire a few rounds on to prowled Albion's virgin shores, but I did not do so, as I felt fairly certain that he would not approve, and I do not wish to lay myself open to rebuffs from him after his behavior concerning the smoking incident. I boil with rage at the thought, but again I digress. The fact that the land was obscured was favourable from the point of view that we were not worried by coast-watchers, but unfavourable from the standpoint that we were unable to take bearings of anything, and so ascertain our exact position. The importance of this point in submarine mine-laying is obvious, for, owing to our small cargo of eggs, it is quite possible that we may be sent here again to lay an adjacent field in which case it is highly desirable to know the exact position of one's previous effort. We were somewhat assisted in our efforts to locate ourselves by the fact that a seven-fathom patch existed exactly where we had to lay. We picked up the edge of this bank with our sounding machine, and steering north half a mile, laid our minds in latitude. No, on second thoughts I will omit the precise position for, though I shall take every precaution, there is no saying that through some misfortune this journal might not get into the wrong hands. I am very glad I decided to keep these notes, as I shall take much pleasure in reading them when victory crowns our efforts and the joys of a peaceful life return. I found it a delightful sensation being so close to the enemy coast, in his territorial waters, in fact. For the first time since the Skadrak battle I experienced the personal joys of war, the sensation of intimate and successful contact with the enemy, and the most hated enemy at that. We had hardly finished laying our eggs when a droning noise was heard. With marvellous celerity we dived, that damned fellow Alton, who under these circumstances leaves the bridge last, treading on my fingers as he followed me down the conning tower ladder. The engineer endeavoured to sympathise with me, and made some idiotic remark about my being quicker when I had had more practice. I bit his head off. I can't stand this hail-fellow-well-met attitude in these U.C. boats, from any lout dressed in an officer's uniform. They wouldn't be holding commissions if it wasn't for the war, 
and they should remember that fact. I suppose they think I'm standoffish. Well, if they had my family tree behind them, they would understand. We dived to sixty feet, and then came up to twenty. Alton looked through the periscope, and then invited me to look. Curiosity impelled me to accept this favour, and, putting the focusing lever to skyscrape, I swept round the sky. At last I saw him. He was a small gas-bag of diminutive size, beneath which was suspended a little car, the most ridiculous little travesty of an airship I have ever seen. He was nosing along at about eight hundred feet, and making about forty knots. Suddenly he must have seen the wake of our periscope, for he turned towards us. Simultaneously Alton, from the conning-tower, I was using the other periscope in the control-room, ordered the boat to sixty feet, and put the helm hard over. We had turned sixteen points, a hundred and eighty degrees, and in about two minutes heard a series of reports right astern of us. It was evident that our ruse had succeeded, and that he had overshot the mark. Inside the boat one felt a slight jar as each bomb went off. We gradually came round to our proper course, and cruised all day submerged at dead slow speed. Every time we lifted our periscope he was still hanging about sufficiently close to make it foolish for us to come to the surface. Towards noon a group of trawlers, doubtless summoned by wireless, appeared, and proceeded to wander about. These seemed to concern Alton far more than the airship, and he informed me that from there, to me, aimless movements he deduced they were hunting for us by hydroplanes. Occasionally we lay on the bottom in nineteen fathoms. By four p.m. the atmosphere was becoming rather unpleasant and hot, and gradually we took off more clothes. Curiously enough, I longed for a smoke, but wild horses would not have made me ask Alton for permission. At eight p.m. it was sufficiently dark to enable us to rise, which gave me great pleasure, though the first rush of fresh air down the hatch made me vomit after hours of breathing the vitiated muck. On coming to the surface we saw nothing in sight, but a breeze had sprung up which caused spray to break over the bridge as we chugged along at nine knots. Everyone was in high spirits, as always on the return journey, when the mind turns to the fatherland and all it holds. My mind turns to Zoe. I confess it to myself frankly. I hardly realized to what extent this woman had begun to influence me until we received this wireless signal ordering us to delay entering for twelve hours. The receipt of this news, trivial though the delay has been, threw a mantle of gloom over the crew. I participated in the depression, and, upon thought, rather wondered that this should be so. Self-analysis on the lines laid down by Schlesmannweil, footnote, apparently some German author, of obscure origin, as I cannot find him in any book of reference, Etienne, end of footnote, revealed to me that the basis of my annoyance is the fact that my next meeting with Zoe is deferred. I feel instinctively that I shall have trouble here, and that I had better haul off a lee shore whilst there is manoeuvring room, and yet, and yet I secretly rejoice that every revolution of the propeller, every clank and rattle of the diesels brings us closer together. Alton has just come down from the bridge, and we chatted for some moments. 
it is evident that he wishes to apologize for his rudeness over the smoking incident. I was in error, I admit it frankly. At the same time I did not know that the battery was on charge, and to dash a match from my hand, I could have shot him where he stood. However, I am not vindictive, and as far as I am concerned the incident is ended. One thing I find trying in this small boat, and that is that I can find no space in which to do half my Muller exercises, the leg and arm-swinging ones. I must see whether I can't invent a set of U-boat exercises. Good. In two hours we reach the mole-end light buoy. New Entry Submarine Mess, Bruges It is midnight, and as I write in my room at the top of the house the low rumble of the guns from the southwest vibrates faintly through the open window, for it is extraordinarily warm for the time of year, and I have flung back the curtains and risked the light shining. We spent the night at Seeburga and came up to the docks here next day. We shall probably be in for a week, and I am on four days' extended absence from the boat, which practically means that I can go where I like in the neighborhood, provided I am handy to a telephone. After a short inward struggle I rang Zoe up on the telephone. Fortunately I did not call first. A man's voice answered, and for a moment I was dumbfounded. I guessed at once it was the Colonel, and I had counted so confidently on his being still away at the front. For an instant I felt speechless, an impulse came to me to ring off without further ado, but I restrained myself, and then a fine idea came into my head. "'Who was that?' I said. "'Colonel Stein,' replied the voice, and my fears were confirmed, but my plan of campaign held good. "'I am speaking,' I continued, "'on behalf of Lieutenant von Schenk.' "'Ah, yes!' growled the voice, and for an instant a panic seized me, but I resumed. "'He met Madame Stein at dinner some days ago, and she kindly asked him to call. He has asked me to ring up and inquire when it would be convenient, as he would like to meet you, sir, as well. He has been unable to ring up himself, as he was sent away from Bruges on duty early this morning.' I smiled to myself at this little lie, and listened. "'Your friend had better call to-morrow, then, for I leave to-morrow evening for the Somme front. Will you tell him?' I replied that I would, and left the telephone well satisfied, but cursing the fates that made it advisable to keep clear of Number 10 Kaffelestrasse for thirty-six hours. Needless to say, next day I rang up again in order to tell the Colonel that Lieutenant Schenk had apparently been detained, as he was not yet back in Bruges and how I felt sure that he would be sorry at missing the Colonel, etc., etc. But all this camouflage was unnecessary, as she herself came to the phone. I could have kissed the instrument when I told her of my stratagem and heard her silvery laughter in my ear. It is arranged that to-morrow, starting at ten-thirty, we motor for the day to the forest of Meten, taking our lunch and tea with us. Pray heaven the weather holds." Tonight in the mess it is generally considered that UB-40 has been lost. She is ten days overdue, and was operating off Havre. She has made no signal for a fortnight. Such is the price of victory and the cost of war. Death, perhaps, in some terrible form. But, bah! Away with such thoughts. Tomorrow there is love, and life, and Zoe.
End of section.